Welcome to the Seek 24 podcast. My name is John Michael Lucido, and this podcast will feature some of our favorite podcasters recorded live at the Spoke Street Media Booth during Seek 24 in St. Louis. We hope these give you a glimpse of the energy and passion from the conference and help you in your faith journey. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the All Things Catholic Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Sree, and we are here at a special edition in St. Louis for the Seek 2024 Conference. It is amazing here having 20,000 people packing the dome, people from all over, from east, west, north, south, from overseas. But I'm blessed here to have two sisters from the Sisters of Life joining us on the show today. We have Sister Anne Immaculate as well as Sister Veritas, both residing in Denver, where I live. So welcome to the show, sisters. Thanks so much, Dr. Tree. A gift to be with you. Well, we're, we're talking today about the topic of rest, the topic of leisure. We live in a world where there's so much pressure, there's so much noise, there's so much activity, so much busyness. And, and a lot of people, young people, whether they're the college students that here experience this, I know many moms and dads experience this out in the world as well, there, there, there's a lot of pressure and, and to find time for just rest, to rest in the Lord's presence is hard to do. What advice do you have for us in, in this very busy, overactive world in which we live? Well, I think just the first thing is, you know, leisure and rest, it's, I wouldn't say it's not time off, it's like time in to the deeper realities. So I think the first thing is like making, actually like making it a priority in your life every day to schedule a certain amount of time that you're actually, it's like, this is just for leisure and rest. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm not going to try to measure myself, perform, achieve anything, but just be in a way that actually is life-giving. Yeah. And I think often in the experience of, of rest, we want to go and do something. You know, we were just having a conversation um, earlier about this where uh, we think we need to fill that time with, with something. It's hard to be silent. It's hard to be still. And really to put your heart in a disposition of receptivity is really where our hearts can finally rest and find leisure. And we can do that even if we're doing things. Our hearts can be at leisure even if we're in the midst of activity. But God invites us to make space as well. Tell me a little bit more about that. How do you do that when you're busy, whether you're a student, you've got a lot of exams you're getting ready for. How can you find rest in the midst of that? Or you're a parent and you're raising kids and you got to get them from one thing to the next and get dinner ready and, and, there's so, and a kid breaks down, there's so much going on. How, how do you find rest in the midst of, of a lot of pressure and a lot of activity? Well, I think so much of it is how you approach reality. So do you see reality as something that's a threat to me, something that's, that's coming at me or against me, or do I receive reality as a gift? So let's say, for example, you're, you're with your children or you're in the office or you're at school and you're in the midst of working on something and someone approaches you. Um, is this person a gift to me? Do I have a, an openness and a posture of receptivity to see God coming to me in this human person? Um, or do I see them as something as a threat to my reality? Um, so it's the way that you actually posture your heart and see that which is given to you as something coming as a gift from God or not. I, I guess, uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking of my wife, actually. I was thinking about how there's many times there's chaos in the house. Something goes wrong. There's, you know, spilled, you know, food all over the floor or there's some kid crying or something happening. And, and she'd be the first one to say she doesn't get this right all the time, but she gets it right more than I do. Like I can get stressed about that moment, but she sees it as, as just what you're, what you're saying. This is an opportunity God is giving me to encounter him in this messiness right now, in this other person. 
right now. And and how? But how do I cultivate that kind of attitude? Is because I, I liked how you described this. You know that this rest isn't just like time off. It's cultivating an interior attitude. What are some practical ways we we can do that? That's a great question. I mean, I think. I love what you're saying, Sister Anne, too, because I think sometimes we can measure ourselves or our worth by what we can do, produce, or achieve. And so it's almost like taking a risk. Um, one way to cultivate is take a risk to, to take that time each day, whether that be 20 minutes, half an hour, to, to do something that I'm not performing, not, not achieving, and to experience and to even ask the Lord, Lord, how do you see me in this place? Um, show me who I am here. Um, because when we can encounter him in that place of, of being versus doing, we actually come to this deeper reality of, of who we are that he loves me not for what I can do, but for me. Um, and so I think slotting up time in your schedule every day for a little rest, leisure time is like so essential and so powerful. Now, are you describing like 20, 30 minutes of time for prayer? Is that what you mean? Or you mean something something else? I mean something else. I mean like, um, like just think like, what makes you feel like a kid again? You know, what gives life to your soul? Maybe that's going for a run. Maybe that's painting. Maybe that's writing a story. Maybe that's reading a book. Something that actually draws you um, into this life-giving place in your heart where you're, there's, there's freedom, there's peace. It's, I'm not talking about like video games or TV. It's actually something that is um, profoundly creative in, in the deepest sense. I love that, Sister. It reminds me, when we were postulants, um, one of our sisters invited us as a part of our formation to go on these wonder walks, is what she called them. So we were given an hour of time where we would go for a walk and as soon as your heart was moved by something in creation, you were invited to pause and to stop. And you just let your heart and your mind receive the gift of whatever it is. So it was a flower, a tree, a bird chirping. And you allow your heart simply just to receive. And it's actually cultivating this space of, yeah, the capacity to be with creation, to be with God, and to see that I don't have to produce things, as you're saying, Sister. I don't have to achieve something in this walk. I can simply be in a posture of wonder. Um, and it opens my heart then when I get into the busyness to actually be able to receive reality, the rest of reality as a gift. I wonder, how about for you? What, what, how, how, what does leisure, this little 20-minute time, look like for you all in, in, in the comment? <laughs> you know, I like to, I like to run. I like to, I like to read. I like to just have good conversation with my sisters, join nature, go for a walk. It's so restorative. We actually, in the convent, we actually have time every day um, called recreation time, which if you break it down, it's recreation time, um, an hour every day to actually do that for leisure. That's how important it is in our like horarium, our religious life horarium. So it's like not optional. It's like essential to actually our, our being. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you this though? Okay. Let's once again, I'm picturing like many of my listeners out there are, are lay people. Mm-hmm. They're, they're young college students or they're young adults, they're young families. And they, they hear that go, wow, I want, I, want, I want to become a nun so I can get that hour of time. How, is it possible for somebody in the lay state with the pressures of you've got work all day long and then you've got family life going on or as a, a single college student here, you know, you got all, the, all that you're going. Is it possible to really build in that time every day? How have you seen Because I know you, you all work with so many of our Definitely. students and you work with a lot of families. You work with a lot of moms. What, how, how can you feel, fit that in? Definitely. You know what? I would actually say leisure and rest is not a, a luxury, but a necessity. And the reason I say this is I, we talk to a tons of college students. Um, and one thing that's actually a, a theme in my conversations with college students, totally overwhelmed, totally overburdened. Their prayer is not going so well often. There's a, there's a sense of, of futility in prayer, all of that. I ask, so I often ask them, do you leisure? Do you rest? And usually the answer is no. 
And what happens, and when we don't have that time, everything else kind of, um, it, it starts to become more stressful, more pressure, and it, it, it just builds and builds and actually kind of creates like this swirling vortex of, of pressure. So actually the common denominator in my conversations with college students is that they're not leisuring. And once they start leisuring, it's like actually the world opens up more for them and they find there's more time than they thought they had um, because they're giving that space actually to experience God's wonder and goodness. Yeah, and I would just echo that, sister. I love it. And I think you have to get really creative, I think is what I'm, I'm learning. And, you know, we have it protected in our own life, but just in, as a word of encouragement that, yeah, it does, it does take some creativity, you know? So is it, is it when you're driving to work in the morning, you turn the radio off and you just have a space of silence? Is it when you're drinking the coffee in the morning and you're holding your child in your arms that you step outside to look at a flower for just five minutes, 10 minutes? Um, is it, yeah, making spaces in your life where it's possible? Is it after the kids go to bed, you and your husband say, hey, we're going to have 20 minutes where we're just silence, silent with one another uh, and do something creative or do something that's life-giving? So I think it's going to look different depending on the person and the situation, but it does take a creativity and a real protection. You have to fight for it, um, but it's worthy of the fight because it's a necessity. One of the things I think is one of the greatest obstacles, challenges to building that disposition of rest and leisure in our souls is not simply busyness and activity. I've got so much going on. It's actually this thing. Mm. I, I, for, for the listeners here, I'm holding up my iPhone. I, I think our devices, you know, when we have those pockets of space in our day, where do we turn? Do we actually turn to look at God? to listen to him, to look at God in the face of my child or the person around me or the beautiful sunset or the flower? Do I, do I take that time to do something that's recreationing, if you will, for me, recreation, as you pointed out, sister? Or am I just wasting time checking Instagram or checking messages or watching a pointless YouTube video? Nothing wrong with occasionally looking at those things, but, but I think if we're constantly pulled to our phone, that actually, you never come away rested. You come away more used or anxious and you don't feel better about yourself usually. And so I, I would say to, to build in time where we can not be a slave to every notification, every buzz, every beep that comes on so that I can have the freedom of space. So one, one story on this, I, it reminded me of something you said, Sister Veritas, about students like trying to have a good prayer life even. If, if they have like no leisure outside of prayer time, their, their, prayer, their prayer life isn't going to go well. I was, I was visiting a campus, one of our focus campuses this last year, and there was a young man that came up and really wanted to have a, a deeper prayer life, but he knew he was struggling because I'm always distracted. I, I, I'm so restless. I can't sit still. I try and try with all my might not to be distracted. And, and, and I, I just feel like every time in my prayer, it's just, it, 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 it goes badly. What advice do you have for me? And then I ask him, well, tell me this, outside of your prayer time, What's your life like outside of your prayer time? Do you, how often do you check your phone? Do you check maybe 10 times a day, 20 times a day, once every hour? How often are you checking? And he kind of smiles and goes, oh, I check, I look at my phone a lot. I go, how often? And he goes, oh, it is like dozens of times every hour, like constantly. And I said, you might want to start there because if you're constantly grabbing for your phone, you have something else pulling you always like that's, and it's a message or it's, you know, a meme or there's something, you know, a good picture or there's this funny reel or whatever. Like, and I'm constantly looking here. I'm constantly stimulated. I will never have time to sit quietly in the presence of the Lord. And it's no wonder I'm going to be distracted because I'm used to being distracted in the rest of my day. So I think this idea of building in leisure is really important. Certainly we're made for that. 
but it, it does directly relate to our prayer life. How have you seen that? I can definitely testify to that. I know like in the convent, we have, I mean, there's so much to do. Like we have so much, we can always be doing at all times. And so actually the, the recreation we do take in the day, it is a choice. It's a fight for it because I could fill that hour easily with a thousand other things that need to be done, you know? And so I think, but you're right. So there's so much pulling our attention and um, it's like this risk of love to give, to give that time um, uh, to, yeah, to, to allow ourselves to receive God's rest. And I, I, can, I can definitely say the times that I haven't taken that, I've, or like there's a week or two, I've just like, go, go, go. And I didn't take my recreation time. It, it wasn't a good week for me of, of prayer. It was just kind of like, you just felt like you're running the whole time and it never, um, and never getting anything done, you know? <laughs> so I, I can attest to the power of it. Yeah. yeah, and I think I love what you were saying. I think just just paying attention to, um, yeah, paying attention to that desire to touch the phone, to touch email. I mean, as sisters, we don't have personal cell phones, but we do have email, and so yeah, there can be a real temptation of do I check my email constantly? You know, am I am I seeing good things that need to be done? You know, ministry that needs that God is you know calling me to. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's like our hearts are crying out for love. Our hearts are made for love, and so this is coming from a good place. Like the reasons we touch our phones constantly, the reasons we want to check our email is because we want attention. We want to be seen. And it's, it's an instant gratification of what we think is going to actually fill the deepest parts of our hearts. And it doesn't. And when it leaves us empty, we go to it again. I want more. I need more. It's not filling. It's not filling. It's not filling it. And so recognizing, wow, actually these things will never fill my heart. And there is one person alone who will fill that space. And when we get into spaces of silence and we have nothing filling that space, we can get afraid because we're afraid that someone might not show up there. Someone might, might, might not meet me in the depths of my heart. But we have to give time and have courage to step into that space and trust that there is a love that will meet us there and provide for us there and, and accompany us in that space where we don't have to prove ourselves and we can just be who we are. And that we're loved without doing anything. Mm-hmm. Well, in closing, I want to ask each of you the question, because you were all college students at one time, and we've got lots of college students out here. What advice would you have for them? If you were to go back looking at your college days, what would you do differently to build in more leisure? What do you, what do you wish that you, you, you might have done differently? It's a very good question. <laughs> Something that I think, I mean, I, I started to do this towards the end of my college years, and I suppose I, I wish I would have done it earlier, but... Um, I learned, I love music so much. I play music and I love music and something that, I'm not against music and you know, it might be something that could be built into your life-giving space, but um, something that I found really helpful when I was in college was every time I would drive to work or drive somewhere, I would just turn the radio off. Um, and, or if I was working on homework or just in my, in my room, um, I just started to create little spaces of silence um, that actually really yeah, created a space in my heart to hear the Lord's voice and to be okay with just being. So um, I know that I found that to be something really helpful. And I think if I were to go back and tell myself, I would have just encouraged myself to do that more and not be afraid of that, that space um, where I don't have something filling me other than the Lord and his presence. I love that. I think one thing I would have done, um, I did this very end, I think end of my college time, but I remember being inspired by Scott and Kimberly Hahn's testimony of how when they were in college, they didn't work on Sundays. And yes. I took so much courage. I, don't, I couldn't do it for most of it. But then I, I, I actually, but whatever, I, I did it. I, I um, That last year or whatever, not working on Sundays, it was amazing. It was amazing. And it was such a, a scary dare because I was like, this is crazy. This is a whole extra day of work that, you know, <laughs> where is it going to go? 
But it, God blessed me so much in that, in that dare of love. And so I'm inspired by the Hans. So thank you. Amen. To- yeah, same thing for me. I, I was a student with, with Scott Hahn, who's here uh, at the conference, and he's, he's an incredible teacher. And I remember the first week of graduate school, him teaching about the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I heard that, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Because I'm very type A. I want to get everything done. And I was, that's 24 hours I just lost. And I, mm-hmm. am I going to get a good grade still? And, but yeah, to really live the Sabbath well. We could do a whole other episode just on the Sabbath, but we've laid a great foundation here, sisters. So thank you, and, and I pray that uh, you've inspired everybody here to live rest and leisure more in their hearts. So let's give it up for the Sisters of Life. And thanks for listening to the special edition of All Things Catholic with Edward Sri here at the Seek 24 conference. And stay tuned, everybody, because we have someone else coming up. If you want to hear from Father Gregory Pine, we're going to be talking next about the vocation of marriage. If I choose to become married, will I be less holy? Can I really be holy in the sacrament of matrimony? That's what we're going to talk about in the next one. Give me just two minutes to transition. Let's give it up for the sisters one last time. And welcome to this special edition of All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sri, here in St. Louis at the Seek 24 Conference. It has been such a blessing. We're here midweek through the conference. We have 20,000 people filling this dome, this former NFL football stadium. We just had an amazing mass with hundreds of priests, dozens of bishops, and, and so many young people here. But today, I'm excited because I get to be with Father Gregory Pine. You may know Father Gregory Pine from his podcast, from his book on, what's the title of your book on prudence? Prudence. Oh, that's, there we go, right there, <laughs> to the point. And I've had you on the show. We talked about that in the past. Yep. I guess today we're going to talk about a, a kind of a prudential decision uh, that's very important, especially for many young people as they're discerning their vocation. And it's something that I myself remember struggling with in my 20s, shortly after I graduated from college, I was discerning whether God was calling me to the priesthood. I spent some time with a great holy Jesuit priest, going through the 30-day exercises with him and just spending you know, a few months living the life with him. And I remember really hearing the Catholic theology that marriage is a great vocation, but objectively, the better vocation was for priestly or religious life. I remember reading from St. Paul, and we talked about how, you know, if you can, it's better to be single so you can be single-minded for the Lord and give your life totally to Jesus and, 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 and serve in his mission. So I remember hearing those things and going, wow, well, that, that's the higher vocation. Maybe that's what I should do. So if you were talking to Edward Sree back in his early 20s, <laughs> what, did, what, what, what would you have told me? Yeah, I would... On the one hand, I would affirm that religious life is an objectively higher vocation, but then I would clarify the reasons for which. Because uh, when we say that something is objectively higher, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's subjectively ours. Because God in his providence doesn't, doesn't just propose ideals and ask us to attain to that standard without giving us particular helps which lead us along a particular path. So if God were to give us all equal opportunity for great graces, and then if we were differentiated into different vocations by how we succeeded or failed in consenting to those graces, then there would only be two types of people. There would be the Blessed Virgin Mary and relative (laughs) failures. (laughs) So God, in his loving kindness, addresses to us a particular call. So we would affirm, on the one hand, that 
Religious life is objectively higher, but that's because it embraces objectively higher means like poverty, chastity, and obedience. But when we look at marriage, we're looking at what we might call like the primordial vocation. It was what God intended for our first parents from the time of their creation. And in the ordinary course, it was the way in which grace was to be communicated to subsequent generations. Marriage was meant originally as a kind of monstrance through which the glory of God was told unto creation. And it's only with the fall that we have the introduction of the priesthood and the religious life. So I think it's helpful to situate it in God's providence and to situate it in our appropriation of his gifts. So that way we can begin to unpack in our own lives what is, what is genuinely for us. Now, I've talked to many young men uh, on college campuses over the last 25 years of focus that faced the similar kind of dilemma I did as they're discerning the priesthood. And they might hear this idea of objective versus subjective, but they still kind of go like, well, but, but isn't the priesthood better? And, so, and I, and I want to be better because I want to give the best to God. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I would say that the best that we can give to God is the consent to and cooperation with the graces that he actually gives. So some of you have probably prayed the litany of humility, which is a terrifying prayer to pray. But the last invocation is that others become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should. And in part, that's meant to break us of comparisons in the spiritual life, because as G.K. Chesterton wrote, comparisons breed contempt whether contempt for ourselves or contempt for others, because we're not meant to compare ourselves with others insofar as the graces given to them are distinct and that they are meant to attain to a different kind of flourishing. So I think that like we can trust the Lord in his providence, that his plans for us are good. They might be modest, they might be simple, they might be humble, but they are good provided that we consent to and cooperate with them because the, the only graces to which we can consent are the graces that he gives. Because if we spend our whole Christian lives like lamenting past graces not seized upon or lusting after future graces never to be accorded, we'll miss out on the actual grace which God gives. And so like, I'm thinking of a particular instance when I was assigned in Louisville, Kentucky. There is a music teacher who had her recitals in our parish center. And there was this little girl who was maybe six or seven and she had gotten hot cross buns down on the viola. And she <laughs> went up there for a performance, but within a, a couple of notes, she just botched it. And you could see in her face that she recognized that she had botched it and she just kind of collapsed. She finished something like hot cross buns, made a bow, and then ran off stage. And she buried her head in her father's shoulder and was just there for the next 45 minutes. And I was just looking at this dad and I was thinking, this man is called to love this little girl. And that's a beautiful life. That's a wonderful life. But it's not a life to which we have access by comparisons because you can't foretell that this girl will botch this piece of music and bury her little head in your shoulder but you can respond to the graces that God gives, which make of you a man ready to love those whom he puts in your life, whom he entrusts you with. And that's beautiful, that's wonderful. So that even if it, the religious life, priestly life is objectively higher because of the state of life, because of the vows and all, we're not saying that you can't be holy and as holy as God is calling you to be. I love that, that you, you referred to that last line in the, in the litany uh, of humility. What would happen, though, if there was some, somebody who's like, well, I just, I just want that objective, you know, I want to be the objectively holy. That would be almost a form of kind of spiritual pride, wouldn't it? It could potentially. And I mean, in religious life, you see various people come for various reasons. And sometimes the Lord will purify an intention and a man will stay. Or sometimes you'll recognize the fact that he is, you know, quote, kicking against the goad. And you'll see that the life crushes him. It doesn't actually liberate him because God is not suiting him for it. And you might think like, he could look at God or turn to God in anger and resent the fact that he wasn't given the grace or he wasn't given the gift to persevere in a life towards which he inclined. But that's not the point. 
right? The point isn't to, you know, like you said, uh, set out in our own direction and ask God subsequently to confirm us in it. Like the whole relationship which we are meant to develop before the Most High God is one of dependence, right? It's one of looking to him for everything, like every good and perfect gift. And the sisters were talking about that with like this disposition of leisure or rest whereby we're made more receptive to his, you know, promptings or to his initiative. So like we're meant to recognize and respond to the actual graces that he's given. And we'll find that in the state of life that he prepares for us, that such a life will unfold gradually by its own organic laws. Well, that's what happened in my life, because obviously I didn't become a priest <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> back when I was discerning, and, uh, and, and eventually found my wonderful wife, Beth, and we've been blessed with eight children. And I could certainly speak to some of this from my own experience, but I'd love to hear from you from a theological perspective, but even just what you've seen in, in your own pastoral ministry. How is it that the, the way to holiness really is achieved in the life of marriage and family? You know, because you think about holiness, we could think of Mother Teresa, and we think of her praying these holy hours and serving the poor, and uh, we could think of many priests and sisters, contemplative nuns, and that looks and feels really holy. But when you look at a really messy family and lots of noise and chaos and kids fighting and husbands and wives fighting, like, you look at that and go, oh, that, that's not as holy. Uh, you know, and, and we can wonder, is this really a way to find sanctification? Yes. Um... Maybe I'll just say a couple of principles and then look to you to fill in the details slash give the insights. Um, so I was you know, just talking a little bit about God's original intention for humanity and referring to marriage as the primordial sacrament. The idea is that when Adam and Eve would come together, had they not sinned, that their children, when God infused an immortal soul, that he would also bless them with a life of grace. So that marriage was intended, you know, for the procreation and education of children, but for the procreation and education of saints in effect, for the procreation and education of saints. And so, like, while we have lost that original vision or while we have lost hold of that original plan, yet, you know, we refer back to Romans 5 and think of the how much more, which we now have in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sense that marriage becomes in turn a sign of Christ's love for the church and of the church's response to Christ's love for her, and that your love, you know, your love of your wife and your wife's love of you, which breaks onto your love of your children, is, is a sign in like the sense, like the strong sense of sacrament, right? Because it is a sacrament. Because it's not merely a symbol, but it's a symbol which actually bears the grace for effectuating the plan which God will have realized in it. And so when you say yes, and when she says yes to each other and to your children, that becomes fruitful. That bears a grace which sanctifies those whom you welcome into your home. And so... I'll often say, you know, like when preparing couples for marriage at one parish assignment that I had a few years back, like marriage is first you show up and then you show up and then you show up again and then you die. <laughs> and I think that there's You're a dying in the process too. Yeah, exactly. You know, but like there's a grace in showing up for the other because, you know, you love to show up or because you might not love to show up in the particular moment, but it's borne on by a habitual love of showing up, which mediates a grace to the other but you have more to say on that. Oh, well, I have experience. <laughs> I can say, what I would highlight is, my wife Beth and I, we often will do a talk for college students or young adults, and it's called the realities of marriage. Because I think sometimes many people can idealize, romanticize what marriage is all about. They think, wow, you know, we're both Catholic, we love Jesus, we go to adoration, we go to daily mass, you know, we, we study theology, the body, so we're not, we're going to do marriage the Catholic way, and it's going to be really special and awesome, and, you know, we'll, we'll hold hands at night, and 
you know, sip red wine and look into each other's eyes and whisper sweet quotes to, of theology of the body to each other. It's going to be really special, you know? And, and I think we can, you know, many young people can really idealize, you know, marriage is going to be so awesome. Yeah, we'll fight and there'll be hard times, but I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to lay down my life for my bride, Ephesians 5. And they get all excited about it. But then I love talking to the married couples like about three months or three years after they're married. And they're not saying that anymore because they've experienced how much they have their own selfishness, their own weakness comes out in marriage. Yeah. And, and they are experiencing the weakness and wounds of their own spouse as well. And there could be a lot of hurt, disappointment, great joys as well, but also a lot of messiness in there. But it's precisely, I think, in those hard times, those difficulties that come up, whether it's little things like, why doesn't he put his stuff away? You know, why does she spend the money this way? How come he, you know, he, he treats the kids this way? Or bigger things where they feel like, why is my spouse not listening to me? I don't feel cared for. There's, you know, there's all these tensions that happen in every marriage. The best of the Catholic speakers that are here today, uh, the married ones would tell you they've struggled in their marriages. But it's right in those struggles, I think, that Jesus is inviting us to love like he loves. And so, Father, when you talked about like there was the original marriage, but then there's something even greater that Jesus has come to give us through his redemption. The happy fault, if you will, applied to marriage is that his grace can change our hearts to begin to love as he loves, to forgive as he forgives. So a last thing I'll say on this is I often highlight that when you, you look at Good Friday and you see Jesus on the cross, you see a man who was ridiculed, he was hurt, he was misunderstood, he was unappreciated. He was left alone by the people he thought were closest to him that day. His own disciples you know, weren't there except John. And, and there were hurtful words and hurtful actions. That's marriage. <laughs> that, it, marriage has many moments where there's misunderstandings. There's a lack of appreciation. I feel like I, we're not communicating. I feel let down. And there could be hurtful words. And yet, how does Jesus respond on Good Friday? with generosity, forgiveness, patience, love. And all of the little things and big things that come up in marriage and family life are opportunities for us to encounter Christ and to uh, uh, cooperate with his grace so that my selfish heart that wants to say, don't treat me that way, or my selfish heart that wants to say, I just don't want to serve right now, I'm just tired. <laughs> my, my selfish heart becomes changed by God's grace over time. Uh, and I think that's... How have you, I'm wondering in your own pastoral ministry, how have you seen couples kind of grow in that? Because that's real holiness when that happens. Yeah, I think um, in each state of life in a distinct way, we're meant to come up against the fragility of our own human nature, like our weakness, our woundedness, the various ways in which we, you know, only inadequately uh, consent to and cooperate with the grace of God. The question isn't so much like whether or not you are weak and wounded, the answer to that is yes. The question is, what do you do with that? And I think a lot of people kind of turn in on themselves, but the genius of a vocation is that it's meant to break you open in that disposition. So like, especially in marriage, I think of the line of, you know, St. Paul, like, who will deliver me from this body of death? We're all meant in our vocations to pose that question to God. Like we've all come up against our weakness and woundedness. I'm just thinking of, you know, you guys out here, and some of you have probably tried to do whatever, Exodus on the one hand, or Fiat, or Magnificat, or whatever it's called on the other hand. Um, and you come up to like, whatever, day seven, and the thought of taking a cold shower makes you want to vomit. Or like the thought of not looking at a screen when you're in the midst of an anxious tailspin makes you want to die. Whatever it is, like who will deliver me from this body of death? 
We're all in the habit of answering that question for ourselves and to ourselves and being locked in an ongoing conversation of just like a terribly, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it's just of a terrible sort. But like what vocation is meant to do is to break that conversation open to God and in the case of marriage through one, through one spouse. You know, it's like, not that you will deliver me from this body of death, but that you're here precisely as a sign, as an efficacious sign of God's deliverance, right? By your meekness, right? By your gentleness, by your compassion, by your patience, by your fidelity, right? By your constancy, by all the simple ways in which you continue to show up that give me courage to take the next step uh, or that give me courage to do the next right thing as that sage poetess, Princess Anna of Arendelle once said. Um, so yeah, <laughs> wow. it's, it's like, it's in the setting of vocation that we come to discover that it's about posing that question to living of our, like it's about living our lives like a kind of, yeah, open wound, uh, looking to God to heal it in a way that's deep and abiding, but only ever in heaven, holy and entirely. So, yeah. Which vocation is easier? <laughs> Young person came to you and said, which vocation is easier? How would you answer that? Yeah, I think it would depend upon the time and the place. I'd say for the first five years of, you know, like religious life versus the first five years of marriage, you might think in a certain sense that religious life would be more difficult insofar as it involves a lot more in the way of denial. Uh, but, but like, you kind of get over that within the first two seconds. You're like, ah, all those things that I had, I no longer have. Moving on. <laughs> Um, but I think that like difficulties for me in, in religious life have come in waves with the recognition of certain deaths or the recognition of certain deprivations that I've willingly undertaken and then other ones that have come and found me. Um, but then when like talking to my, my one sister has five kids, my other sister has four kids and then my brother just got married and he's expecting his first in like two weeks. Um, but then to talk to them about their lives, I realized how remarkably similar uh, the deprivations or the difficulties are but like the logic of the sacramentality is distinct. Like there's just, yeah, there's a way in which in religious life you're called away into the desert uh, to abide alone with the Lord Jesus. And there's something about that which is peculiarly devastating because no one can protect you from it and the Lord himself won't protect you from it. And in, and in marriage, it sounds, you know, like based on the testimony of those with whom I've spoken is that you are called away into the desert. And sometimes the most acute suffering is that you feel alienated even from the person with whom you have endeavored to do this wonderful thing. And that's the most acute suffering, is to find yourself isolated from the one with whom you promised to be in all things. You know, like, I'll be next to her and she'll be next to me. And here we are at odds ends, even though the scriptures tell us not to go to sleep at odds ends. You know, it's like, ah, you know? So I don't know, I don't know the comparisons are especially fruitful because the suffering of each state fills us up from the, from the soles of our feet to the top of our head. But the point isn't so much to compare, the point is to be together on the way, you know, to support each other in the ways in which we are, you know, we can. All right, last question here. What advice do you have for our young people here if they were to say, Father, I'm, I'm discerning between marriage or priestly life, religious life, what should I do? My advice would be get married. And then when you hear that, what happens in your heart? Are you relieved or are you disappointed? If you're disappointed, then maybe consider, you know, religious life and make a couple of visits. But if you're relieved, be free. You are meant to be married from the inception of creation, right? And now in certain lives, you'll come to discover that the Lord ruins relationship after relationship for non-culpable reasons. And it seems like he's doing something else. And that's worth following. That's worth looking into. But I would say that you do not all have to discern religious life. You do not all have to discern priesthood. It's not a necessary step antecedent to finding somebody whom you love and get married to. It's not, right? 
So go ahead and get married. It's blessed. What I would say simply is, you know, commit to a life of prayer at least 20 minutes a day to sacramental reception of Holy Communion and use of confession in a way that keeps you honest before the Lord and engaged in a life of ongoing growth and conversion. And then introduce some penance into your life, engage in good Christian friendships, study the faith, and that you can come in turn to trust your desires, that what you love, what you want, will in fact be the Lord's will for you, provided that you're honest before that question and that you continue to raise it, you know, before the Blessed Sacrament. Well, thank you so much, Father Gregory. So great to have you back on the I show. Do. And uh, where, where can they find you? Um, where can they find me? Here on stage. Uh, you can find me through the, the podcast Godsplaining is probably the best gateway drug. All right, thanks so much. Let's give it up for Father Gregory Pine. And for Dr. Edward Shree. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, if you want to check out my podcast, you can get it on Apple Play. You can go to Google Play. You can go to Apple Podcasts. You can go to Spotify. My one advice, if you look for my podcast, do not simply put in my last name, SRI. If you search SRI, you will not find me. You will find an Indian Hindu guru. And you don't want to find the Indian Hindu guru guy. Put in Edward SRI. You could do that. Or you could type all things Catholic, one word, to 33777. That's all things Catholic, all one word, all things Catholic, to 33777. And they'll get you the podcast information there as well. Thanks so much, everyone. God bless you all. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more info on the Seek Conference, visit seek.focus.org. This episode of the Seek 24 podcast was produced by Spoke Street. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.